And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the Hump Day edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, as uh, always, kind of plugging through the week here as we get ready to wrap up the month of August. Of course, not much going on right now, but everybody is laser focused on, of course, Jackson Hole. That's the, uh, as we talked about yesterday, that's the annual confab of global central bankers. They all fly in from everywhere around the world. The ECB, the Eurozone, the Bank of Japan, Bank of England, everybody comes in and they all sit around and they discuss how they're going to take over the world and <laughs> you know what they're going to do with monetary policy and uh and interest rates inflation liquidity all that so you know right now markets have been kind of just you know trading quietly this week and and again bit of sell-off yesterday uh again not surprising we said yesterday morning that futures were pointing higher and that you know it was possible that after a couple of days of sell-off we could have a bit of a rally but that we didn't expect it to stick and it didn't and yesterday we actually closed just a smidge lower uh, kind of sloppy trading all day this morning. Futures are pointing down again, uh, but just just a little bit. I mean, the, the S&P is down two points, right? So just very quiet trading. Everybody's just kind of waiting now to see what's going to come out of Jackson Hole. And, the, and, the, and that's really the whole thing here. The markets are clinging, uh, you know, kind of to one meeting to the next from the Fed. And it's kind of interesting if you think about it. You know, we're not talking about economic fundamentals, which were terrible yesterday. The S&P Global Manufacturing and Service Indexes both came in weaker than expected. And importantly, though, the service indicator that was put out by S&P. And remember, the U.S. economy is now 80% services and about 20% manufacturing. That's reversed from where it was back in the 60s and 70s. Um, but the services indicator actually came in in contractionary territory, recession territory, right below 50 um, markets didn't really pay a lot of attention to that. I mean, the markets are solely looking at the Fed. We're not talking about earnings or valuations or fundamentals, price to sales. That's not what we're looking at in markets anymore. And this is what's happened over the last decade, well, 12 years, of just this continual monetary intervention. We've completely you know, moved the market away from paying attention to what matters when you make an investment to just what's the Fed going to do? Is the Fed going to hike rates, lower rates? What are they, they going to pivot? That's the big question. When they come out of, of this meeting, will they say something different? And, and the odds are no. Um, our expectation is right now that when we walk away from the, the uh, Jackson Hole Summit, we're going to find out exactly what they said in the FOMC minutes, which is, well, we're just going to maintain monetary policy. Um, we're watching incoming data. Our next meeting is in September. We'll monitor the data coming in, and then we'll make our policy decisions based on that. But our focus is still combating inflation for right now. Employment remains strong. Those are going to be the kind of the, the key words coming out. And, I, and, and the markets will likely rally a little bit on that because, again, it's not a deviation. It didn't get more hawkish or more dovish. But, you know, the, the thing that, you know, the markets are really looking for here is, is the Fed going to get more aggressive about their fight on inflation, right? Inflation is still high. And one of the big concerns with inflation is that it may not come down as rapidly as, you know, we hope. 
right? Everybody's kind of hoping for a big reversal in inflation. And while inflation will come down, we will have disinflation this year, right? So the rate of inflation will come down, particularly as we head into early 2023, because the year-over-year comparisons are getting uh, more difficult. But wages aren't coming down. And wages are a cost input into businesses. And of course, businesses have to hike prices in order to compensate for higher wages. Those get passed on to consumers. So we may very well see a a more persistent rate of inflation, shall we say? In other words, it won't come down as fast as people expect it will come down, but that's gonna keep the Fed focused on fighting inflation. And one of the things that we talked about recently, and and again, if you take a look at financial conditions as an example, financial conditions have actually been getting much easier over the course of the last month or so with this rally. And again, as this market rallied very sharply, credit yield spreads declined. We talked about that yesterday a little bit as well. And, And that's given the Fed plenty of room here to continue being aggressive and continue to kind of talk the hawkish talk at the moment. There's nothing, you know, the markets aren't giving the Fed any reason to be concerned. High yields not blowing up. Um, you know, yields on high yield bonds have actually been coming down again. But again, nothing out here really to worry. Now, the, the, the one thing that will worry the Fed is the housing market. And we'll talk about this today. Survey was out the, uh, yesterday. 76% of home buyers regret their home buying decision over the last couple of years, right? What's the biggest reason? They paid too much for their house. Uh, they, they didn't inspect it enough. They bought houses unseen. They, you know, they, you know, they, they did all the things that you shouldn't do when buying a house, but there was such a demand because of the media, right? Talking about this housing problem, right? We got a housing shortage. I wrote an article back in 2021 talking about there is no such thing as a housing shortage. There never is. There's always plenty of houses for sale. And at some point, prices get to a level to where people go, hmm, you know what? I just really shouldn't pass this up. And they put their house for sale. And then when the prices do start to come down, people that were thinking about selling their house, they go, I'm going to sell my house. And houses just kind of flood the market. Well, also at the same time, buyers disappear, right? They don't want to buy them. So now you have this big inventory surge of houses. That's what's happening right now. And of course, that surge of inventory is going to cause prices to fall. And we're just now starting kind of the early innings of a potential housing recession here. So again, the one thing that really could kind of concern the Fed is the housing market because it's such a big component of the overall economy. And it's one of those things in the economy that has a very big multiplier effect. And and a multiplier effect is, you know, how much does a dollar get multiplied in the economy? Um, by activity. So for instance, if I, you know, if if Brent is an Uber driver and I pay him to drive me somewhere, okay, I give him a dollar, he drives me, then he spends his dollar on gas or maybe a snack, right? But it's a very limited follow through of where that dollar goes in the economy. However, if I build a house, as an example, it's not just paying the contractors to build the house and the commodities to build the house, but then, you know, the architects, the engineers that designed it, um, all the real estate agents that are involved, the lawyers that are involved for the buy and the sell of the house, the permitting, uh, the the acquisition of the materials, then, of course, all the furniture and the fixtures, and everything else that goes into the house on top of just the construction of the house, it has a very big multiplier effect in the economy. So housing, and, and, and also given the relative size of housing, it's very important to the overall economy. So If we begin to see substantial weakness in housing, which is still likely um, as we move into next year, and there's some indicators right now 
that are suggesting that we will see further deterioration in housing prices as the supply demand imbalance um, starts to kind of work its way back into reality. And then also just the fact that, you know, people are contra contracting back from buying houses is going to cause housing prices to drop. Mortgage demand is down, obviously, because people aren't going to, you know, refinance a house for certain at a higher price. And right now with mortgage prices up, as we've talked about before, one of the things about mortgage rates are when they go up, people, A, first of all, they can't afford to buy the house that they wanted to buy, right? Because now the, the monthly payment, that's just one thing. People buy payments, they don't buy houses. So higher mortgage rates lead to higher prices so they can't buy it. But the thing, the second thing and more important thing is that it's psychological as well. We've had such a long history now of mortgage prices steadily declining. When they do bump up, investors and, and buyers go, you know what, I'm just going to wait because every time previously mortgage rates came back down again, so I'll just postpone my house buying for a year or so and I'll wait for rates to come back down and then I'll buy the house. So again, there's a couple, there's a lot of things weighing on housing, but that's one of the things more importantly than anything else that the Fed may have to contend with that they aren't quite paying attention to just yet. Be right back after the break with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hi, Lance Roberts here. If you're like most people, your 401k plan represents the bulk of your retirement assets. And unfortunately for many, managing your 401k plan can be difficult. There's so many choices, so many things to consider. With just a quick email, a couple of questions, you can put RIA Advisors to work for you managing your 401k plan. Get started right now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, or simply call our toll-free number, 855-RIA-PLAN, or again, simply online at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Back to the show this morning. I'm Mario Science Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me this morning. He is our Dennis Rodman of RA Advisors. Plus hmm. the uh, tattoos and those piercings. He comes in to help, right? He comes in to help. Dennis Rodman's going to go to Russia to try to help that poor girl, right? You know, he's talking about the WNBA basketball player that is now in prison she i think she was sentenced to nine years in prison yes if i'm not mistaken nine years in prison in russia um that's uh, nine years she won't have to hear the national anthem play that is correct um but yeah nine years in prison apparently she says that you know if you don't know the whole story and, and again i haven't dug into all the legal ramifications of all this but she had um cbd oils which are illegal in russia and she was basically charged with drug smuggling and so she's in prison for this now you know just st stupid mistakes get you you remember we had the same type of scenario with the the young kid and he was in north korea oh yeah and yeah and and uh, took a took a piece of paraphernalia off the wall it just he wanted to keep it as a souvenir which right. is yeah. destroying government property and you know he actually passed away but you know Th these things happen when you travel to other countries you don't do stupid stuff right just <laughs> you have to pay attention to their laws not yeah. your laws right what you think but anyway dennis rodman says he's gonna go help that poor girl stay away <laughs> russia is not one of those places that you want to mess with 
<laughs> and if you want to make things potentially worse for her, <laughs> go over there and start telling Vladimir Putin what he needs yeah. to do, right? They will not be humored by Dennis yeah, Rodman. The, the, well, a little bit different. Kim Jong-un is probably, um, you know, those guys were going out drinking beers, having a good time. Yeah. I don't think he's going to go to Russia and do the same thing. Exactly. So just there, there's some things. And they're working on a prisoner swap, too. Leave it alone. Yeah. Leave it alone. Don't mess stuff up. What does and, that say, though, for people here in the States that are in prison for similar type of crimes? Right. Do, does it not matter? It was it CBD oil or was it more? I mean, I, I don't know the whole story I, I don't behind know the it. Whole, I, I don't know all the de the details yeah. of it. And it was enough to get her arrested. Yeah. Yeah. So. And again, you know, there's this happened, and, and by the way, this happened you know, just as the Russia Ukraine war was kind of kicking off, and so part of you know part of the the theories are is that this is part political as well. So that's oh, always sure. I'm it's sure always it political, yeah. but yeah, absolutely. Anyway, just Dennis Rodman. I'm going to Russia to help that girl. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, he, he, he apparently met Vladimir Putin back in 2014 and said, you know, he's actually pretty cool. So that's what Dennis mm. Rodman says. So Interesting. So maybe, I'm not maybe, sure. Maybe what they'll that... have a rapport. <laughs> Just consider the source. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm so, not sure what that reference means really now, but it's, yeah. It's, it's, I'll take it. I go to help people. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, king of defense, rebounds. I can, I can handle that. Exactly. But, uh, Until you blow your knee out. Uh -huh. uh, it's too late for that. <laughs> Speaking of helping people, uh, Joe Biden now wants to help people again. And uh, he is set to sign this week a potential bill, I guess, or executive order. Not sure exactly how they're going to approach this because, you know, this has to do with government debt, but to forgive $10,000 in student loan debt. Now, this was a huge campaign promise uh, by the Biden administration, and, you know, they have done nothing with this. And of course, with midterm elections right around the corner, they really need to go to the table in elections and say, see, we forgave $10,000 of your student loan debt. Aren't we great, right? We did what we said we were going to do. Now, this is going to affect households of $125,000 or less. And again, you know, one of the things that nobody's talking about, and the last time I checked, debt forgiveness is a taxable event. Is that right, Danny? Or do you know for sure? I'm not. I'm not sure on that. I believe now, it is. I believe it is a taxable yeah. event, though. Yeah. Historically, when that has occurred, typically you're going to get a 1099. Yeah, that'll so, be fun. Yeah, but hey, you know what? Tax on 10,000 versus 10,000, right? Which is better? Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, but I, I think there's a lot of people. You know, considering we've talked about before, people don't have money to meet, you know, obligations. All of a sudden, if this becomes a taxable event because it is debt forgiveness. So basically, you've been given ten thousand dollars, and you get a tax bill that you can't pay. I'm sure people are going to be just as upset. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? You forgave my debt? Yay! You got, I got taxes. No, <laughs> right? So, just, but the election will be passed by that yeah, time. This is true. This and is then true. we'll just forgive the taxes. Yeah. Right? Well, sure. Well, sure. No. <laughs> but you know, again, as we've talked about before, this is going to anger a lot of people as well. Um, you know, what about people that never took out a student loan? Um, you know, to pay for college, or what if people for gay, you know, for, you know, looked at the cost of college and said, I can't afford to go, and they didn't go to college because they didn't want to take out the debt, they were being responsible, whatever, and they didn't go. So what about those people? And then what about the people that paid back their student loan debt? Do they get a refund of $10,000, right? So, and then again, the question 
you know, really kind of going forward, Danny, is is that if you know you're going to forgive debt for this group of people, what about the next group? You know, my my son and daughter are just going to college. They're going to take out student loans. Do are they going to get ten thousand dollars of student loan forgiveness? You know, at some point in the future. I mean, and then this is the slippery slope. I mean, you if you're going to do student loan forgiveness, that's you know, it's not fine, right? You're violating contract law, which is, you know, hugely important. And, you know, people took on these loans willingly and they used them for things that they shouldn't have used them for, um, you know, because there's no real restrictions. And there's plenty of stories about student loan debt being used for trips to Cabo and parties and spring new break. cars and spring break and all kinds of stuff that had nothing to do with college. So, you know, it's great. We're going to forgive this $10,000, but you, you technically need to shut the loan program down now, right? So no more loans from this point forward. We're going to forgive $10,000 of, of student loan debt to everybody that has a student loan. Okay, but there's no more student loan program run by the government. It's got to go back to the banks. It has to go back to the banks. Yeah. There's no way they can continue to go down the slippery slope. I mean, there's $1.75 trillion in student loan debt. 92% of that is held by the federal government. And this is why we're in this, this dilemma. You know, it makes the problem even worse. You read the headlines. You see the clips on the, on the news. And you have all these people out there. Uh, protesting to get their student loan debt wiped, wiped their, their, their uh, slate wiped clean. It's like, go to work. Yeah. You know, hold on now. You could be, you could be working to pay these things back. You're worried about this, but you're spending your time in, in, in other ways. I mean, that's, that's a whole other problem. But, um, you know, the loan, we've well, had a loan moratorium as it is right now. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's the whole rush for this because that ends. I just, want to, I just want to give everybody a quick little history on student loans, by the way because it's incredibly important as to whose responsibility this all is. Student loans actually started in 1958. From 1958 to 2008, <clears throat> student loans were only $500 billion, right? Over that whole time, we went from zero student loans to $500 billion in student loans in 2008. In 2008, the Obama administration said, we're going to take over the student loan program. The reason that Danny says 92% of, of student loans are now government loans is because the government took over the entire student loan program in 2008-2009. In just 12 years, student loan debt went from $500 billion to $1.75 trillion versus $500 billion from 1958. So it just goes to tell you that once the government got involved in this and, and everybody goes, well, why is college so, so damn expensive, right? The rent's too damn high. It's because the government took it over. And as soon as the government took it over and said, hey, you know, it's like Oprah Winfrey. Everybody gets a student loan. You want a student loan? You get one, right? Danny wants a student loan. He can have one. And you can use it for whatever you want. Nobody's really going to check. And this is the problem with student loans in general is that once the government took it over, it just became a free-for-all. And this is why colleges went, do governments have student loans now? <laughs> okay, tuition. <laughs> you know, and they kept raising tuition. Student loan debt would go up. Government would give people more student loans. Nobody was checking credit quality, ability to repay it, nothing like that. But this is, this is the problem, is that we took a system that was run by banks where people had to qualify for loans, they had to get co-signers, et cetera, and that limited the run of student loan debt and what it was used for, which kept college tuition in check until the government took it over. And now that we've you know, opened up Pandora's box, the, the solution here of $1.75 trillion is to uh, give people a $10,000 know, gift to try to get votes.
Well, this may backfire. I mean, think about the guys that did not go to college and went out and bought the work tools, that bought the work mm-hmm. truck, that did these things that, um, you know, maybe look and feel a little bit different than going and getting student loan debt. Yep. What happens to them? Nothing. And, and what happens to everybody else that paid already? You know, that's that's the part that is frustrating, too. Mm-hmm. And, and then you're putting the burden back on the taxpayers. So, look, if I sign on the line, I don't expect somebody else to go pay my debt. I think but, that, but this is, but see, this is the whole problem. I, I, I'm going to put, I'm going to put it in air quotes. This generation, because, you know, the the generation I grew up in, and Brent grew up in, is if you took out a loan, that's your obli- that's a moral obligation, mm-hmm. and you pay it off. Correct. Right. This generation is is what are you going to give me for free? And there is no responsibility, and, and it's interesting too. You know, there's, you know, you know, even take a look at employment. You know, the younger generation, they're job hoppers, right? There's no loyalty to the company they work for. When, you know, when my dad was growing up and when I was growing up, you know, you worked for an employer, you were loyal to the company, and you went, did your job, and you stayed there for a very long time. And that was just the way things were. But, you know, over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, that loyalty to that loyalty, those moral obligations, you know, those things that kind of drove that greatest generation group of people no longer exist. And so now we're into these problems to where now it's like, you know, you're going to give me something for free. Great. Um, and now you get inflation. You don't like inflation, but this is the payback for free money in, in, in the bank. But it, this is also inflationary. Yeah. And it is inflationary. So, but again, this is, a, let's, let's just be clear about all this. $10,000 at the end of the day for somebody that's got 90000 in debt is no big deal, right? They're still got a, they still got to have a big but, loan but that's payment. that's the important part, too, I think we talked about on the other side of this break. If you have $90,000 in debt, are you on the bottom or the top end of this? Right. We'll talk about that. And But, again, it doesn't really help them, but it no. gets you votes, right? It gets you, you're buying votes. And that's, that's, that's really what all this has come down to is how do we buy votes for the next election. Be right back after the break. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a para group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. So just talking a little bit about student loan debt forgiveness. And it's interesting, Wall Street Journal out this morning talking about it. Wasn't it only last week the Democrats were touting something called the Inflation Reduction Act? So much for that. The press is reporting everywhere that as early as Wednesday, President Biden will announce he is canceling student debt and extending the moratorium on student loan payments for several more months. Now, 
what does that have to do with the Inflation Reduction Act? Remember, the Inflation Reduction Act was to do a couple of things. One is to put a lot of money into the, the fight for climate change, but, a, but it was supposed to reduce the debt and deficit over the course of the next 10 years by some $300 billion, right? So it was going to help start, you know, putting us back onto a better track of financial stability. Well, the <clears throat> this is an this student loan moratorium forgiveness uh, combo is an inflation expansion act. The report says that Mr. Biden will cancel ten thousand in debt for borrowers making one hundred twenty five thousand dollars or less a year. So what does that cost, right? That's the question. You know, what exactly out of one point seven five trillion dollars? What are we talking about here? That's going to cost about $300 billion this year and about $330 billion over the next 10 years for the federal government. And, of course, that's uh, that, this according to Penn Wharton um, in their budget model. And that's far more than the $102 billion the Inflation Reduction Act purportedly reduces the deficit over 10 years. So about 70% of the loan relief is going to go to borrowers and the top 60% of the income distribution. So there's the other problem there, too, right? Danny, is that, you know, here we are supposed to, you know, we're supposed to help these people that, you know, you know, uh, you know, are, are struggling to get by and, and can't make ends meet, et cetera. And the Inflation Reduction Act was a huge giveaway to the to the to the super wealthy. Right. Um, you know, because in order to get cinema, Kristen Cinema's vote, they had to give back the um, hedge fund, the, the hedge fund Ford tax interest. break, the carry forward interest. Right. And, you know, so they got a huge they got a huge tax benefit out of that. And if you actually dig down into the Inflation Reduction Act, everything that goes to, you know, fighting climate change, et cetera, uh, tax credits for EVs, et cetera, all go to people on the upper income. So as much as as the Democrats talk about how much they want to go after the rich people, they keep passing bills that benefit rich people more than anything else. And this is the same thing here, because this is going to go to those individuals and the top income earners in those brackets that will get student loan relief, not the bottom end that needs it the most. Well, the bottom end that needs it the most is likely somebody that maybe didn't graduate or, uh, you know, racked up mm -hmm. debt, couldn't quite finish, needed to go work. Um, undergraduates, you know, if you look at the stats and numbers, so the average federal student loan debt's $37,000. Uh, but the average debt for a graduate student is 189000 So let's put that in perspective, 189000 But the average debt of somebody who's going to receive this $10,000 is $99,000. Yeah. So where does that put them? This is somebody who's been a career student, went back, has continued to, to go. And look, there's look, everybody's got to go their own path. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, you know, the idea of somebody actually going back and bettering themselves, I don't think it's a bad thing. But what we talked about is all those times that people went back with degrees where you couldn't make any money. Now they're upset because, oh, I've had to pay this back. Yeah. So that's where the problem is. And then now everybody else is. And then it goes to, you know, things we discussed earlier. What happens to the people that have already paid? Mm. You know, on YouTube, somebody's mentioned, hey, I want I want that money back. I said, heck, yeah, with interest. Right. Well, I mean, you know, and, and this is a slippery slope as well. If, you know, if you're going to forgive student loans just because, well, it's just you want to forgive student loans. What about my auto loans? What about my housing mortgage? What about, right. you know, my credit card debt? You know, if you want to help me. You know, in the end, this goes right back to this is just another way to send checks to household. And by the way, President Biden has no legal authority to do this, right? So he's going to try to do this through an executive order. So it's going to be a a issue that will probably come down to the battle, uh, you know, a battle back in Congress between the Senate and, and the House. We'll see what happens here. But 
technically the president doesn't have legal authority to forgive legal loan obligations. And these are legal binding contracts between individuals and the government. And again, this goes back to contract law, which for the foundation of capitalism and for the foundation of any strong economy, you've got to have strong contract law. And, it's, and, and the one thing that we talked about before, you know, what has made, you know, the experiment of capitalism in America so successful has been the rule of law. And that is that contract law binding, which is, you know, if I enter into a contract with Danny to do business, right, I, I'm, I'm a manufacturer in Europe and I'm sending product to Danny. Danny signs a contract with me um, that says he'll pay me for this product and I send the product to Danny and Danny doesn't pay me. I have legal recourse in the U.S. courts to get paid. And that support for that contract law is, is what makes doing business with America so beneficial versus other countries. You know, if you're, in, if you're doing business in China or Russia or some other country like that, North Korea, um, and, and they decide not to pay you, what are you going to do about it, right? There's no rule of law. It's whatever the dictator says happens to be, you know, his fancy that day. So rule of law, very, very important. And so when you do things like forgive people's mortgages back during 2008 or start to, you know, break contract law and just give people, you know, forgive people debt, that, under, that undermines that rule of law. If I'm a lender, why would I want to loan Danny money if I knew there was a risk that at some point the government would step in and say, Danny, you don't have to pay, you don't have to pay Lance back, right? So why would I loan Danny money? This, this, this increases interest rates over time because I now have interest rate risk, and, it in, and, and this will obviously also impact inflation. Well, and this is a, the, the problem was, look, it's not meant to be a political discussion. It's more or less meant to be, look, this is inflationary. This is this is an issue with contract law, like you mentioned, Lance. I mean, look at Bed Bath and Beyond. We've talked about that. They mm -hmm. finally evidently shored up some financing, but their suppliers didn't even want to give them goods because they thought like they were going to go out of business. And there is contract law, which you know, yep. you file bankruptcy, they may be able to get out of some of that. So there's some issues that are that are bigger than what this is, and it just really points to: is this an Inflation Reduction Act, the previous act? Is that really the biggest concern? And what does this do? to the welfare of college and, and students. And what is our, what are, what are expectations moving forward, Lance? Where does that go? Right, well, no, it's gonna be, well, you gave 10, forgave 10,000, how about 20, how about 30? How about yeah. just not paying it back at all? That's that's where we're gonna to get to. But again, you know, and again, look, if you're gonna forgive 10,000, forgive it all, but then you have to shut the loan program down. Nobody else gets it. Well, they just need to shut it down already. Well, we've it, seen this in any time the government's taken over any type of private <laughs> industry. It has not gone well. No, it never does. Um, all right, 20 things that, uh, and we'll, we'll touch on this uh, when we come back from the break, 20 things that you should, shouldn't do with your portfolios. Um, but I thought this was interesting before we jump off. A new study, I've been talking about wanting to get to this for the last couple of days, and we have four minutes, so <laughs> it'll be it'll be You this, finally made it. It's going to be the slimmed down version of my rant. Um, <laughs> study claims that more kids are fat and unhealthy because of global warming. A study published in the journal Temperature has claimed that there's a correlation between rising temperatures and children becoming fatter and more unhealthy. Um, <laughs> the reason is, is apparently it's too hot outside to go and play um, versus the reality, which is there's a very high correlation for a lot of things in our country right now that have nothing to do with, you know, 
climate change, but more of the fact that it has to do everything with social media and with technology. And if you take a look at where the the rise in obesity really started to occur was about the time that iPads and iPhones and all those things came to prevalence. And instead of sending our kids out to play, they now sit inside all day and play video games and are you know, watching their phones and, and doing other stuff rather than exercising. Really has, you know, because when we were, when Danny was growing up, when I'm growing up, it didn't matter how freaking hot it was outside, we were all outside riding bikes because there was nothing else to do. That's right. And most of the time your parents were going, get the hell out of the house, <laughs> right? Because you're driving me crazy. Don't come home till the street light comes on. That was it. it. Didn't matter how hot it was, and it was hot back then, and it's still hot today. So, and that's why you drank boiling hot water out of a garden hose, um, <laughs> you know. But that's the way it was. But ever since the rise of of social media, and again, there's high correlations between the rise in social media and mass shooting, uh, mass shootings. There's a there's a rise between social media and gun violence. A rise between you know, social media and, and you know, technology and, and this integration of video games and everything in the households and now obesity. And this has been going on for, you know, decades. And, you know, the, the simple excuse is instead of getting off your butt and going outside and play, it's like, oh, here's an iPhone. You know, instead of parents, you know, when, when you get under the parent's skin, right, instead of saying go outside and play, they go, here's an iPhone, go play. Right? Or you go to dinner or. Yeah. But it, it goes far beyond that. It's also, I think, parents getting lazy. It's it's a lot easier to just say, hey, here's the iPad. Yeah, you don't have to go outside and play with your don't kid. Don't worry about it. Don't talk to anybody. And, you know, furthermore, I mean, look at what people eat. Go through the grocery store. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry, guys. It's true. <laughs> it is. I mean, it, it. we wonder why kids kids are obese. I mean, because you feed them a bunch of crap. Yeah. Well, look, I That's mean, the, the, the military right now is having a very difficult time re- recruiting people because they can't find people that can pass the fitness qualifications. And this is that 18 and under bracket. I mean, who are the people that apply for the military? You're 18, 19, 20 years old when you go to apply for the military. So you take a look at that bracket of time, 18 years, where, you know, these kids were basically raised on, you know, soy lattes and and iPhones, and they can't pass a fitness qualification. Hey, I see it. The the temptation is real because I know, like, my kids, they see what their friends do, like, I just want to veg out. I just want to go like, I'm like, no, <laughs> no, absolutely not. They'll, they'll thank you later. Yeah, no, they're, yeah. they're busy enough. Yeah. My, my, my kids, you know, complained to me all the time that I was making them, you know, play football, go run track, you know, yep. get out of the house. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Ours are busy. It'd be easier to hand them the iPad and say, yeah, exactly. Have at it. But yeah. All right. Quick break. We'll be back. 20 things you should or shouldn't do or maybe possibly did do with your portfolio. We'll come back with that right after the break. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a fiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show. 
Welcome back to the show this morning. Just the insanity of stuff. Iceland launches buy now, pay later scheme, allowing customers to take out interest-free loans to help families through the cost of living crisis. You want more inflation? There you go. <laughs> cost of living brought to you by inflation. Let's make more of it. And it's not just Iceland, Britain. I mean, many other places <laughs> are starting to do the it. same thing. Yeah, well, no, then Alaska is giving checks to people. California, uh, elsewhere. You know, the, the very thing that's creating the inflation is all these are mismanaged people. fiscal policy. Exactly. And so let's, let's do more of that to help people through the inflationary times by creating more inflation. They're just, yeah. Anyway, 20 ideas for adjusting your stock and bond portfolio. So, you know, this is kind of, this was another kind of article in the Wall Street Journal uh, that was interesting. This was out a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, back on August the 7th. And we were supposed to try to get to this, I think, last week, and we didn't get around to it. But, you know, this is, you know, kind of interesting because, you know, everybody's always got advice for managing your portfolio and doing things. And so here's, you know, here's 20 things for adjusting your portfolio. And it's interesting because a lot of these things are contradictory to each other. So what, which are. one are you supposed to do, right? What do you, if, if, the, if two things contradict, which one do you do? Just throwing spaghetti against the wall like, hey, yeah. well, you know. Right. Well, and that, that's the frustrating thing is when you look at this is that do you just take what you think feels good or maybe the easiest thing to do out of this? Mm -hmm. Or do you actually like, hey, here's here's a really good idea. Here's why you should do this. And then don't contradict yourself two lines later. Right. But I think a lot of these, there, there's some good things and there's some bad things associated with this article. And I think that if you went and Googled it, um, you'd probably think the same. But, you know, one of the things says don't lock in losses. And I think that this is a problem. And, and now I can under, understand where somebody goes all in or all out and they say, you know what? And they lock in losses. But hey, there may be times I want to have some losses because I want to carry these forward for future. Well, or what if it's a terrible investment? <laughs> I was going to say, that's, that's the, you know, this, this is one of the big fallacies of investing, which is, well, you don't really lose money until you lock in losses, until you sell something, right? Now it's a loss. No, it, it's a loss. The value of your portfolio is the value of your portfolio every single day. So if you're losing money, that's the value of your portfolio. Yes, you haven't realized it yet, but you've still lost money. That It is what it is every second of every day. That's the value of your portfolio. So this whole idea that it's not real until you sell it is completely crap. And, and, to, Danny's, and to Danny, to your point, which is, you know, if you've made a bad investment – Right, you've bought the wrong stock. You've in, you you made the wrong investment. You whatever you did wrong, not fixing it doesn't make it just magically disappear. And all you're doing now is just hoping that you're going to get back to even at some point, maybe, and you can get out of the position at a higher price. But what what opportunity cost have you given up in the meantime? If you would have sold that loser stock and bought something else that went up in value during that same period of time. Well, and, and it could right? have been a, good, been a good investment at one point. And so the other aspect that we see is that somebody may anchor to that high watermark. Mm -hmm. And then they say, hey, I'm not, I can't sell this until it gets back to here. Well, a good investment can turn into a bad investment quickly. And the problem is, what if it never gets back? So I always tell people, okay, we're taking a cross-country trip and we're in a car that's just not running well. What are we doing? We're going to stop, we're going to get it fixed, or we're going to go find another one. So yeah. you're going to go rent another car, go rent another position, and you may be much better off. Well, look, there, there's some great examples right now. Zoom, Peloton, right? Mm -hmm. If you bought those at, at, at the highs or near the highs, those stocks are not going back to where they were. They were, they were so overvalued relative to the world. Peloton is never going back to where it was. 
It, you'll be lucky if that company's in existence in 10 years. A, a, a bike maker is a stupid investment, right? Because people's trends change. Somebody else is going to come out with some better bike, and then everybody's going to go buy that one versus Peloton. It's just, you know, and Peloton even today is overvalued. So, you know, there are some stocks that they ran up during the boom. They've gone down. They're never coming. You can hold that for the next 50 years, and you're not ever going to get back to even, right? But then, to Danny's point, what else have you got? Let's go to another one, though. The rule of 120. I love this one. The rule of 120 says you take 120 <laughs> minus your age. Now, I really don't understand where the hell 120 came from. It's kind of an arbitrary number. It's like, it is. why not 150? Or well, they've used 175. used to be the number for years. Now yeah. they're saying 120. Why? Uh, because they're trying to push people into stocks. There you go. So that's that's exactly my point. So 120 minus your age. So I'm, you know, just, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. But I'm 60. Um, almost. Not quite there yet. Pushing on it, though. Time. Knocking the door. You are getting old. But 120 minus 60 says I should have 60% of my money in stocks. That has no relevance to anything, right? How much money I have invested in equities versus fixed income depends solely on what the risk is in the markets and what the markets are doing. And this whole idea that I need to have more or less money invested in equities because of my age has nothing to do with reality. In fact, is I can make very significant arguments that with inflation running higher than normal, you need to have more equity in your portfolio if you're getting older into retirement because with bond yields low and, and dividend yield equ dividend on equities and some equities higher, there's a good case to be made to have a larger allocation of your money invested in equities versus fixed income. And that may be the case for quite a few years ahead. So these arbitrary numbers of just, you know, <laughs> take, but, a, take some number, pick, an, pick any number and subtract your age, and that's how much money you should have invested. It's not tied to any form of reality. It's just stupid. But we also need to be, be mindful and cautious of where, where, where are prices right now? Are they still expensive? What are the headwinds the market has? I mean, there's so many more things than just taking your age. Yeah, that, that drives me nuts. Yeah. So kind of piggybacking off that, then what do you do? What do you think about the automatic rebalancing? Sell your winners and buy your losers. Right. That, that, that's all you have to say right there. I mean, every quarter. Yeah. Just don't worry about it. Yeah. And this is, you know, this goes back to the, you know, if something's not working, why do I want to keep plowing more money into it? It's like that. It's like you're. It's like that cousin you've got that never repays loans. That you know he's, he's always coming and borrowing money from you, never pays you back. And every time he shows up, you keep giving him more money. You know why do you keep investing in stuff that's not working? So you know you got two stocks in your portfolio. You've got Apple that's four percent off its highs, and you've got Zoom which was down another twelve percent yesterday. So let's rebalance. Let's sell Apple to buy more Zoom. Right? It yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. All right. So what do you think about retirees buy more bonds? Individual bonds, yes. I think you can make an argument for that. Yeah. But on the same token, you know, you need to understand where, where we are in interest rate cycles, what's going on in the economy, the bigger, broader mm -hmm. picture. And does that rule of 120 actually say buy more bonds? I mean, maybe a little bit, but not a whole lot. Right. Well, and again, you know, why do I buy bonds? I buy bonds because, again, we're talking about individual bonds, right? So not, not bond funds, bond ETFs, nothing like that. I buy individual bonds because they have three factors that – I want as part of my portfolio allocation, which is I want a return of principal function. So when those bonds mature, I get all my money back. It doesn't matter if uh, interest rates go to the moon, right? Interest rates go to 100%. My bond will go to zero in value, 
right? It's like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. No, it's, it has no relevance on anything. I hold the bond till maturity and I get all my money back plus my coupon. So it doesn't matter what, if I own the individual bonds, it doesn't matter what interest rates do, you know, from now to next week, even to next year. At maturity, I get to the penny exactly what the contract I made with the lender was. And that's the beauty of bonds. They also lower the volatility in my portfolio. So my portfolio is not jumping up and down every day and I'm losing sleep at night. And I get a steady income stream from the bonds to live on. So three good reasons to own bonds. Individual bonds. Yeah. So what do you think about behaviors aligning to your risk tolerance? Because, you know, unfortunately, we're seeing many people, their behaviors are, let's get all the way in, let's get all the way out. We're trying to time the market, not so much understanding longer term, bigger, broader picture. Wait, so what are, you, what are you asking me? Just, you know, what I think about their behaviors? Your behaviors well, are always so, wrong. Well, but aligning with risk tolerance. I mean, risk tolerance goes out the window. It's like we, we used to use very cookie cutter. I mean, this is just oh, the industry I, yes. and, and whole from a risk tolerance saying, okay, what would you do if the market does this? What do you do in the market oh, does that? Oh, that's a complete crap. And, well, it is because what happens is every time that you, the market's doing really well, well, everybody's aggressive. And well, then I, I, the market it, falls apart. And they wonder, why did I lose money? Okay, I can tell or you vice this. versa. Right. So, you know, you used to do those risk tolerance questionnaires back in the day yeah. where they say, if the market's down 10%, will you buy more stock or will you sell or what will you do? And if the, if the market's ripping higher, right, this, everybody's marking down there. If the market's down 10%, what would you do? I'll buy more, yeah. right? As soon as you get in the bear market, it says the markets are down 10%. What are you doing? It's like sell everything. You know, your behaviors have absolutely nothing to do with investing. And you need to separate those two out. And as soon as you start feeling like you need to be all in the market, you probably need to start selling stuff. And when you need to feel like you need to be all out, you need to start buying stuff. But that's the hard part about managing money is that you have to do exactly the opposite of what you're what you're feeling like you should do because your emotions are always wrong. You're always going to get in the way. And so that's right. So the people that, you know, when everybody's on one side of the boat saying, oh man, this is great. We're going to keep going. We would, we would always buy more. We would always stay invested. Well, when the market falls apart, they wonder why they lose money. But then on the flip side, when we're in a bear market and everybody's super conservative, they don't want to take on any risk. Well, the market runs up and they wonder why they underperform. Right. And, and that's part of it. And we do use a risk questionnaire. It's just more behavioral in nature versus the old school, yeah. you know, what happens when the market goes up? What happens when the market goes down? What type of, you know, risk are you willing to take? Everybody's willing to take a lot of risk when everything's going up. Yeah, I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a, I have a risk profile questionnaire I put together yep. that I've been wanting to, to launch for, for clients, which is questions like, if you jumped out of an airplane without a parachute, would you do it? <laughs> yeah, would you, would you feel safe driving down the Pacific Highway on the coast with no guardrails? Exactly. Yeah. You know, those see those are your real questions about risk. And if you're answering no to those, those will tell you a lot about what you need to do with your portfolio. Anyway, wrap up today, Danny. Thank you so much. Um, we covered a lot today: student loan debt, fat kids, and <laughs> things you shouldn't do with your money. Well, that's right. <laughs> Man, did I tell you I got hit in the head by a book last night? No. I blame myself. Uh, Jesus. Don't, don't, I had to throw one in. Come on, no, man. Don't bring that to this show. That's <laughs> you leave your dead jokes at home. No, I'm bringing for, it for Richard. Uh, this weekend, we've got a financial right lane retirement seminar coming up. If you are subscribed to our newsletter at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, you will get an invite to this exclusive presentation of our right lane retirement workshop. It's this Saturday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. Make sure you're subscribed at the website. Just go click our newsletter link, sign up for the newsletter. If you're not already, if you're already subscribed, don't have to do anything, and we're going to email you an invite.
be looking for it in the next day or so. All right. See you then.